Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, and I'm joined always by Stephen Canastrisi. Hi. This is episode 27, and we are speaking today with Kyle Dalton, who is the membership and development coordinator for the National Museum of Civil War Medicine in Frederick, Maryland. For those of you that have been frequent listeners of the show, you might recall in episode one, our introduction episode, we mentioned how Civil War bandsmen were sometimes required to perform medical duties. They would sometimes be surgeon assistants, stretcher bearers, uh, sometimes they would be tasked with digging graves and so on. We noticed that those duties and that aspect of the life of a Civil War brass musician wasn't always talked about in a lot of the sources and a lot of the books and the music and the liner notes that we've been diving into as of late. So we thought that it would be awesome to get somebody like Kyle Dalton, who is very well versed in all things Civil War medicine, that uh, he could shed some light on this very interesting area of Civil War brass musician life. It was a great quote by Massachusetts musician John D. Whitcomb, who served in the American Civil War. And he says, I put some considerable value on the service of the band and the several affairs the regiment was engaged in as an ambulance corps. The mere fact one of our members of the band being twice required to cross the line of fire of both forces undoubtedly saved the lives of several members of our own regiment from the fire of one of our own batteries, several members of our own regiment having already been killed by the unfortunately located battery. The bandsmen had been well taught by the surgeon how to give first aid to the wounded and how to use stretchers, bandages, and tourniquets. We were to go with the regiment into battle, rescue the wounded if possible, and carry them to the field hospital. We were liable to be sent as messengers on dangerous errands. Uh, and that quote comes from History of the 45th Regiment, Massachusetts Volunteer Militia by Albert W. Mann. Kyle, one of Kyle's research uh, areas is actually medical evacuation uh, during this time. So he uh, knows all about this in the ambulance corps and I was great to have him on. And we're both big uh, museum people. So, you know, it's always great to have someone in the museum field on the show. Um, if you like what you're hearing on our show, you can support us on Patreon. And we have a Teespring store where you can go get some merch. And then as always, subscribing, liking, rating, reviewing, all that good stuff on all the podcast platforms and YouTube. And uh, check out our website if you're looking for any resources or for show notes for each episode. They're all up there on our website. And there will also have links in the show notes uh, for this episode for the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, which is in Frederick, Maryland. So we'll have all that information up there for you on our website in the show notes section. Something really special that we want you guys to stick around for at the end of this episode is actually a premiere recording of a piece that was written in 1864 by composer H. Millard and lyricist Miles O'Reilly. This piece is titled Our Lady of the Hospital and is actually an ode to all the women who acted as nurses during the Civil War in the hospitals across America. It's uh, extra special because we don't believe this piece has ever been recorded before. Furthermore, it is particularly special to Stephen and I because it is sung by Stephen's fiancée, Kaylee Harmon, and on piano, my brother-in-law, Matt Warfield May. So stick around to the end of the episode so you can hear this new old piece of music. And without further ado, here is episode 27 featuring Kyle Dalton. So Kyle Dalton, thanks so much for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We're uh, very excited to have you here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. great. So Kyle, how, uh, what, what's kind of your background and how did you get involved with specifically the National Museum of Civil War Medicine? But, uh, you know, before that, where did that interest kind of start for you? Uh, well, I've been interested in history for as long as I can remember. Uh, and when I graduated from Catholic University of America, uh, my undergraduate thesis was about uh, medical evacuation in the Civil War. Uh, so it's always been kind of a, an interest of mine, um, but I'm academically trained uh, as a historian, which is not always the case for museum people. Uh, and my professional career has been in museums for 17 years. So I've always kind of straddled the line between uh, a researcher who goes to archives and libraries uh, and a museum industry employee. Uh, so I've been here at the museum for just under two years uh, here in, in Frederick, Maryland. Uh, I've worked in museums across the country from San Diego uh, to Washington, DC, uh, and uh, always been ready to talk to people and, and bring uh, my research to the forefront to see how I can engage people in different ways. Very cool. With those other museums that you worked with, has they all been of the Civil War era, or have you kind of been jumping around different uh, different focuses? I've been all over the place. Uh, I've worked in uh, maritime museums and historic house museums, uh, 18th century, 19th century. My academic specialty is uh, early United States from roughly the French and Indian War, so pre-US, okay. uh, through Reconstruction, so about the 1870s. Uh, and within that, I've, I've worked at a number of museums of all kinds of topics. Uh, some of them are military, some of them are medical, some of them are, are labor focused or focused on the lives of the enslaved. So uh, I've been kind of all over the map within that time frame. Gotcha. And you mentioned that you did your uh, undergraduate work at Catholic University, right? Yeah, in uh, Washington, D.C., the Catholic University of America. Yeah. So I know you just said you were in museums all over the country, but did you kind of grow up in this uh, D.C. metro area? No, uh, not at all. I grew up in uh, Southern California, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, up in the mountains, a little gold mining town. Uh, oh. So it's it's uh, been a winding path. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's awesome. For our listeners that may not be familiar, can you give us a little bit of uh, context and you know a little bit of background on the National Museum of Civil War Medicine that's in Frederick, Maryland? Sure. Uh, this museum has been here for about 25 years. Uh, and in the past 10 years or so, it's seen a dramatic expansion. Uh, so when we say the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, we often refer to our main location uh, in Frederick, Maryland, right downtown on uh, Patrick Street. Uh, it's got 8,000 square feet of exhibit space. It's kind of what people expect of a museum, um, static displays with artifacts inside. But uh, as I said, we've expanded. So now the museum encompasses two other locations. There's one on uh, Antietam National Battlefield, the Pry Field Hospital Museum. It's an original farm that was converted to a hospital during the bloodiest day in American history. Uh, so that one's a little bit more immersive. You're really in it there. Um, and it's got some great views of the battlefield. And our third location extends our story beyond the war into uh, the implications of the war and the aftermath of the war. That's the Clara Barton Missing Soldiers Office in Washington, D.C., uh, where the famous humanitarian uh, set up a, a station to engage with citizens of the U.S. to try and find their lost loved ones who were never identified uh, by the end of the war. She successfully identified 20,000 missing soldiers uh, to give closure to their families. Wow. So uh, we have grown pretty significantly in the last few years. Obviously, COVID hit us pretty hard, as it did yeah. in the museums. 
Yeah, um, one third of museums in the country are now in danger of closing permanently. Uh, thankfully for us, we're not in that position. Uh, but as with most museums, we are feeling a bit of that crunch. So if anybody wants to support us, the best thing you can do is visit. Uh, and the next best thing you can do is become a member. Uh, you can find that at our website, civilwarmed.org. Very cool. And I know when the last time we were up there, uh, our the band that, that Stephen and I play in here at George Mason University, we actually played the One Vast Adventure Oh yes, uh, performance. We we were the the band on stage doing the uh, the music beforehand. I remember afterwards, uh, somebody had told us that the gift shop had a lot of uh, Civil War branded and and museum branded beer for sale. So we went yes. and got a bunch of beer <laughs> in the gift shop. And it was very good. It was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of the uh, one of the benefits of working here. We get first crack at the uh, at the brews that come our way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's really cool. One of them was uh, at the I don't know if. It, there's various kinds that cycle through, but one of them was a, a ginger beer with a, a recipe from the time period. Yeah, it's uh, that was our our partnership with Flying Dog Brew Works. Mm -hmm. uh, they created a Sawbones ginger beer. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got another one coming soon from another local brewery, though I'm not sure how much I can say about that. <laughs> uh, and we might have a distilled spirit coming down the line. So keep Ooh. an eye on our uh, our social media, our website we'll make announcements when that happens yeah that awesome. gig was great i i had never been through frederick before um and then you know playing that gig it was kind of a like a town-wide escape room kind of thing uh that tied into some history uh you know of frederick during the civil war that was uh, that was really neat uh i forget were you involved in that i know a lot of the local businesses and whatnot were um you know kind of part of planning that and participated in that day yeah, I was uh, on the ground floor. I was selling tickets and t-shirts and uh, helping coordinate the gift shop. Uh, we really had an all hands on deck day. Uh, and we're really proud of the partnerships that we're able to, to do here. Our story is kind of a niche and weird one uh, that can certainly turn people off. So uh, being able to partner with local businesses, with the local escape room, uh, with the breweries and distilleries and with uh, the, your brass band, uh, we're able to reach audiences that might not otherwise even know we existed. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah. And and something that's really interesting with this, uh, this show that Steven and I are hosting, the Early American Brass Band podcast, uh, in the very first episode, we kind of tried to do uh, an introduction to early American brass bands in 19th century music. And uh, we, of course, you know, were able to mention the the stretcher bearer and surgeon assistant aspect, but much like many of the books on the topic of Civil War brass bands, it doesn't get uh, a huge in-depth, <laughs> uh, you know, little blurb about it. It's usually kind of mentioned in passing, and a lot of the, the focus is usually, you know, leaning heavily towards the music making. Yeah, yeah. Um, as you said, there's really not a lot out there, uh, which is kind of surprising. The Civil War is one of those topics that is overpublished. Uh, there are whole libraries that are just books of the Civil War. There's always new Civil War books coming out. Uh, and the historiography of Civil War, the, the story of how the story is told, uh, has shifted in the last 30 years or so. Uh, the conversation has moved away from this grand story of huge armies and the flags and the uniforms and more into personal stories. That also represents a shift in the historiography from the great men, this huge focus on generals, 
kernels maybe being the lowest you go and the occasional throwaway private to give color. Mm -hmm. um, but we've really kind of turned that story uh, in the last 20, 30 years to be more about individual experiences. Uh, gives us a fresh perspective uh, to say things that haven't already been said thousands and thousands of times. Uh, and in that, there are a lot of little stories that are now getting illuminated. Uh, I, I bring all this up uh, to kind of underline what you said earlier, which is for all that's been published on the Civil War, and there are some ridiculously niche topics that have been fleshed out. Mm -hmm. There is no book and has never been a book about medical evacuation in the period. Nobody has ever written a book about the ambulance drivers, the stretcher bearers, uh, all the people that did the basic bare bones stuff. The most you would get was half a chapter in a biography about a surgeon. Uh, but you really didn't have anybody looking at it. And when you're looking at the Civil War, the thing that sets the Civil War apart, one of the things that sets the Civil War apart is how incredibly bloody it was. Oh, yeah. uh, it was just a bloodletting like we had never seen, uh, with maybe the exception of King Philip's War in the 17th century. Uh, and that's if you squint and look at it sideways. <laughs> it was such a devastating conflict. The human detritus changed, fundamentally changed American society. And there have been great books about that. Uh, this Republic of Suffering uh, comes to mind immediately by Drew Gilpin Faust. Uh, where she writes about how American culture was changed by the scale of death. Mm. But most people didn't die in the Civil War. Uh, you were far more likely, in the Army anyway, to be wounded than you were to die. Mm. Uh, and those wounds had very long-term implications. They also had immediate implications. How do we deal with the destruction of human bodies, especially uh, among citizen soldiers, which are you know, lauded even today in society? Mm -hmm. And the ways we dealt with that uh, are very important. Uh, and we really just haven't had that conversation. There is no book about it. And the front line for that was musicians. It was bandsmen. It was drummers and fifers and trumpeters. Uh, these were the guys that were doing it. Uh, and that's what I'm here to talk about today. I remember... Uh reading in some book again where it was just kind of like a, a passing paragraph where it it mentioned exactly what you just said all non-combative uh personnel you know basically were involved in in that duty were there any other uh professions or or people that were with the army that took up that role in the uh evacuation and uh stretcher bearers as well besides the musicians not at first. <laughs> uh, at the beginning of the war, that was what was expected. Uh, and that sort of goes to how ill-prepared uh, America was going into the Civil War. The last major conflict on American soil was the War of 1812, uh, which is, you know, 50 years before this, uh, half a century. And in that conflict, less than one half of 1% of enlisted men became casualties. The army was not ready for the massive bloodletting that was to come. And that's the reason that this uh, aspect of medical care was so neglected. They just didn't think it was going to matter. Only nine, or rather nine out of 10 army doctors had never treated a gunshot wound before the Civil War. Right. Most of the combat they were seeing was on the frontier. It was small scale skirmishes. Uh, and so you could afford to just tell the band to remove whatever wounded there was. But the bands weren't specifically trained for it. 
they weren't large enough. Uh, these these bands uh, were not sufficient for the casualties of Civil War battles. So at the beginning of the war, there was no backup plan. There was no plan B. It was the musicians are going to carry them off the field, period. Hmm. Wow. And, and that was the plan going in or that was kind of a, a last minute decision, like as the bullets were flying. <laughs> uh, it turned out to be a little bit of both. Hmm. Um, so for example, uh, Dr. Richard Vickery, uh, he's a union surgeon writing in 1862. Uh, he wrote in uh, a manual of, of military surgery and military medical care, the drum corps and the regimental band, if there is one, are always on the eve of battle ordered to report to the surgeon for duty but the less he calculates on aid from them, the better. With a few exceptions, they are generally worthless as stretcher bearers, many of them being young lads physically incapable of such fatiguing duty. Uh, so here he's saying, uh, don't count on them, obviously that's, that's in the text, um, but also follows it up with many of these uh, musicians are literally children. The average stretcher bearer would have to carry about 96 pounds at a time uh, and usually your hospital was a mile or two behind the battle. So if you've got a 12, 13 year old, they literally can't do that job. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in that case, sometimes it would devolve upon other roles or ranks. Um, there's talk occasionally of pastors getting involved, of the chaplain of the regiment uh, picking something up. Often it fell to the soldiers themselves to just evacuate their own guys. Uh, and it was kind of an ad hoc affair. Uh, that's not to say that the band always failed. Uh, there are some some good examples of of these musicians really stepping up and doing what they need to do under very difficult conditions. But it was a sort of not great approach, and it wasn't terribly codified. There was no order or law that said the musicians had to be stretcher bearers. It was just kind of expected. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and in a lot of cases, the, the bands were also there voluntarily. You know, they weren't enlisted bands, too. So I'm sure a lot of them were thinking, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I'm here to play my tuba. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, and you, you see that, too. Um, uh, hospital steward Stephen Bonsall wrote, uh, our drums have been silent for a long time and music of all kinds is strictly tabooed, much to the disgust of our bands. We have sufficient employment for the latter, however, in times of battle. They are attached to the hospital and under order of the surgeons. It is their duty to bring the wounded in as fast as possible on litters. So here he's made it explicit. The bands don't really want to be doing this job. They want to be playing music. Uh, in his theater of war, in his army at that time, they're not playing music. They're just hauling stretchers. And that's not the reason they signed up. Mm-hmm. I've got I've got a question kind of pinned, but before I before I get there, so then as the as the war went on and people realized that you know just asking the bandsmen to do these duties was not sufficient, who did other people get pulled in? Like were there, you know, just other civilians, other townspeople who maybe you know helped, or how how did it evolve if it did evolve at all? You know, past just the bandsmen kind of carrying these stretchers. Well, that's where it gets interesting. Uh, so a while back, I was talking with uh, Colonel John Whiteman. He's a U.S. Air Force uh, surgeon. And uh, he was helping us with a program where we take medical cadets to Antietam Battlefield. And we talk about, we put history in conversation with modern issues, modern combat medical issues. Mm -hmm. And Whiteman was focused on um, the ethics of treating the wounded. 
And here you see a division in the Civil War. Uh, the United States were uh, much more invested in quickly and safely evacuating their wounded than the Confederate states were. And there's a lot of different issues for this, but a lot of it boils down to on the battlefield, what is your priority? Is your priority to deal with the aftermath, to deal with the wounded, or is it to win the battle? And there is something to be said about that. PGT Beauregard, uh, famous general of the Confederacy, wrote orders every single year of the war. And in those orders, he constantly said, our highest duty is to win the battle. If we win the battle, then we can treat our guys. If we lose the battle, we leave the wounded behind. We can't do anything for them then. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Confederacy uh, prioritizes getting soldiers to the front. If your guy is good at his job, he needs to have a musket and he needs to be on the front line so we can win the battle. The Union, on the other hand, uh, carves off a part of the army, uh, a pretty significant part, uh, and turns it into a, uh, a structured, well-trained, permanent medical evacuation unit. It's the first ambulance unit in U.S. history. Yeah. Uh, so you have two very different approaches uh, to this. Uh, so what's interesting is, independent of these choices, the bands continue to do evacuation. All the way through the end of the war, even though you have a robust, permanent, trained unit in the North, you also have the bandsmen doing evacuation alongside them, entirely separate from them. Yeah. And you still have people on the battlefield, uh, soldiers putting down their guns and helping their friends. Mm -hmm. um, so John Billings, who wrote a book called Hardtack and Coffee, uh, wrote that one regulation made for this department of the service was never enforced. It provided that no one but the proper medical officers or uh, to abridge the soldiers of the ambulance corps should conduct sick or wounded to the rear, either on the march or in the battle. But as a matter of fact, there were probably more wounded men helped off the field by soldiers not members of the corps than by members of that body. So the musicians continue to do it, even though there is a whole other system set up for it, they continue to do so. Uh, and again, it falls back to that, what else are they gonna do during the battle? Yeah. Uh, they, they still have to put down their, their instruments and, and go do something. Uh, mm -hmm. So they're handed litters and, and they're just sort of made to do it regardless. Gotcha, gotcha. Wow. That makes sense. Yeah. When I'm kind of thinking of this aspect of the Civil War and, and these duties, the, the mental image and I don't know, memory or whatever I can relate it to that comes to mind is the opening scene of uh, the Free State of Jones. Is that, have you seen that film? Right I now? have, yeah. Yeah, so so I, I asked this to our, our last interview uh, person also about gangs in New York and asking about accuracy and stuff. Is, uh, <laughs> is, is that kind of depiction of what that life was like in as terms of a stretcher bearer accurate at the beginning of that film? Yeah, uh, and actually especially for the South, for the Confederacy. Um, so for example, uh, as I said, the Confederacy never really got it together to create a permanent robust unit. Uh, it was very ad hoc. Um, in some commands, in some brigades, in some regiments, you'd have some surgeons step up and put together something better. But there was no national effort and there was no army level effort to really make it work. Uh, a significant portion of the wounded evacuated uh, from the Army of Northern Virginia, General Lee's army, was evacuated by civilian volunteers, uh, the Richmond Ambulance Committee. 
uh, who were not under military command. They just did their own thing. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but uh, in one case, uh, this is in um, Alabama, Tennessee, uh, somewhere in that, that theater. It's a little unclear to me from the writing. Uh, 1864, uh, Private McCleary, uh, he writes about how he was sent to the front line uh, as infirmary corps. And he was just picked out like a couple of hours before the battle. They're like, hey, we're going to need somebody. Uh, you seem like you know what you're doing. You're going to be infirmary corps. You're going to be the guy to carry them off the field. Mm -hmm. And he said, we had no litters on which to carry the dead and wounded. So we often had a hard time taking them off the field uh, to where the ambulances could get them. Uh, and in the Free State of Jones, Matthew McConaughey's character, uh, it, he has a stretcher, but he's by himself. He's just dragging it along the ground. Yeah. Uh, these stretchers weighed on average something like 25 pounds on top of the dude that he's carrying. Uh, so that's sort of like failure to do a very basic thing uh, for the Confederacy. Yeah, totally accurate. That's pretty much exactly how that would have gone. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Such I will a... have to go back and watch. I have not seen that movie yet. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll it, have to give it's got it a some watch. brutal moments in it. It's a, oh, yeah. it's a, it's a pretty graphic one. The book is really good too. You should, uh, you should give that a read. Awesome. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, Stephen, you, you mentioned that you had a, a pinned question. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and this is this kind of goes with the flow here. Um, I was wondering, so we've talked a lot about their duties as stretcher bearers, but once they, you know, got the injured to the hospital, did their duties stop there? Uh, and were they kind of cycling back to the battlefield to get more people? Or did they have any duties you know, when it comes to actually treating these wounds then? As well. They uh, sometimes were detailed as nurses. Um, usually the default was that they would be stretcher bearers, mm -hmm. but they did sometimes work in the hospital itself. Um, here they would be doing some um, less involved techniques. Uh, the surgeons of the Civil War were very keen to make sure that they were the ones making decisions on operations, on what drugs got used. So your, uh, the extent to which they were nursing was probably restricted to changing bandages, uh, changing sheets. Um, maybe they would have been bedside at a surgery, but I haven't read of any accounts of that actually happening. Uh, generally, they're gonna be just going around assisting uh, the surgeons at the shoulder of that surgeon doing whatever that surgeon tells them to do, or they're gonna be doing really basic stuff. Again, like bringing up water, changing sheets, that kind of thing. Uh, so they were sometimes detailed as nurses, but usually the default was stretcher bear. That was the the main thing that they were uh, expected to do. Gotcha. I, I was able to, to pull up a quote. I think this was from a dissertation titled The Bands of the Confederacy that was written by Benny Pryor Ferguson III. And, and in it, yes, yeah, seriously, <laughs> got, got, got to get it right, though, you know, <laughs> clearly there's more than one. So <laughs> uh, it, in this document, he wrote that uh, John O. Kessler of the Stonewall Brigade wrote the members of the band were often exposed to great danger as they acted as assistant surgeons and helped to bear the dead and wounded from the field. They also did hospital duty and several of them in several, several of them could in war times amputate a leg or an arm as well as any regular surgeon. So that quote you're saying is is not common, that that was a rare experience for them to have? Well, it, it usually was uh, for the United States, certainly. For the Confederate States, it was somewhat more common. Hmm. And this is another divide we see uh, in uh, medical philosophy between the North and the South. 
So for the North, they have their permanent robust ambulance corps. It makes up as much as 3% of the Army of the Potomac by the time of uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. So it is a huge organization mm-hmm. uh, in a way that the South just could not match. Uh, they didn't put a lot of emphasis into building ambulances and stretchers. They didn't put a lot of, of emphasis into getting a large group of people to do evacuation. But when they did have those guys, when they did have those ad hoc units, which they usually called infirmary corps, they were trained in first aid. And that's something the North didn't do. Uh, as far as I can tell, I've never come across any reference to these guys carrying bandages. And that seems really basic. If you're going to be carrying this guy for a mile, two miles back, and he's bleeding, put a bandage on it. That just seems really obvious. Uh, and maybe a few of these guys decided to do so of their own accord. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we just don't have any record of that. In the South, though, the infirmary corps, where they do exist, again, on a much smaller scale, they are trained to do first aid, uh, and sometimes minor surgery. Uh, there's a few cases of um, people having bullets pulled from their leg, of having bandages given to them, of painkillers being administered. Uh, and you really don't see that in the North. So for the South, yeah, it certainly could have happened. These musicians may have made a full transition into an actual medical professional. For the North, you're not really going to see that. Uh, and again, the scale is very different too. For the South, you're not going to see a lot of musicians making that turn. It's just a possibility in a way that it isn't for the Union. Gotcha. That makes sense. Was that basically the distance from the hospital to the line of fighting was about a mile or two? That, w- that was pretty uh, standard of a distance that they needed to, to drag these bodies? There was no set distance. There was no um, regulated distance. That was up to the assistant surgeon. Uh, Mm -hmm. or in the case of the Confederacy, maybe the the regimental surgeon. Uh, So for the North, along with creating this ambulance system, that was really just one stage in what we today call the chain of survival. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is how you administer care from the moment a soldier is wounded to the moment they're discharged. Uh, And today that continues beyond the moment of discharge. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Letterman system in 1862 was the first effort to create a multi-layered system of care. And uh, the ambulances were just the first step in that. Uh, How do you get them to care? The second step was the field dressing station. That's sort of where the first aid for the North happened. Uh, And as I mentioned earlier, the surgeons usually like to keep care completely under their direct control, which might be the reason that that these stretcher bearers and musicians weren't being trained in first aid. Uh, You instead had the assistant surgeon making the call as soon as they arrived at the field dressing station. Mm-hmm. So that is where the stretcher bearers are going from the field. Uh, one or two miles appears to be pretty common, um, but maybe the reason for that is all of the memoirs of stretcher bearers, musicians, uh, ambulance corpsmen, uh, the, when they mention how far back they're going, they're complaining about how far back they went. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it could be that we're just seeing the cases that are exceptional, but not terribly uncommon. It's happening enough in the sources that it sure looks like this isn't uncommon, but whether that's usually how it happened is kind of hard to say. It also depends on where you're fighting. So for Gettysburg, uh, you know, maybe a mile or two is as far back as you can safely get uh, or as close as you can safely get. Um, For other places, uh, say in a siege situation, Charleston or Vicksburg, Uh, you may be right next door to the hospital when you get hit. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's kind of hard to to make that call. 
Uh, and it gets even more complicated when we look at the full scale of the Civil War. The furthest west that the war ever got was Arizona. Uh, there were actual pitched battles in New Mexico. Uh, and that's such a different environment and such a different experience uh, that it's kind of hard to make a broad brush statement about exactly how far back they were. Uh, but as I said, in the sources, they're usually complaining about a mile or two. Gotcha. And, and were those locations usually uh, the, the reappropriated like farmhouses and stuff? Or was it kind of a mix of pre-existing buildings and uh, tents and, and large campsites that were kind of set up? So the field dressing stations, uh, it was kind of a mix. Uh, sometimes it was just next to a rock or a tree, a place that could be easily found by the stretcher bearers and musicians. Um, other times it was set up in an actual building. Um, and then from there, they'd be sent back to a field hospital. And that's a much more uh, robust institution. You're gonna have multiple surgeons there. Um, that's where a lot of the surgery is gonna take place. Most of the amputations are in those hospitals. Uh, for the Confederacy, it's a real mix because they don't have the same system that the North does. They don't have this multi-layered approach. They have stretcher bearers, hospitals, and that's pretty much it. Uh, so sometimes these hospitals are kind of small next to a rock, really just kind of a first aid thing. And other times they're multi-layered, huge hospitals with multiple surgeons in them uh, under tents or in buildings. Uh, so it's a real mix, and it depends on which side uh, the wounded were fighting on. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Sorry, Seal, were you going to say something? Or yeah, well, I was wondering more a little bit more about the the ambulance corps that that the North uh, had, and you, I, you know, circling back, you said that you know by the end of the war there was some writing that um, you know the only people meant to be transporting these wounded soldiers were you know this ambulance corps. But when did that? When did they? you know, see the need for that? And how did that kind of get started? Uh, for the North, it starts in 1862. And it starts actually only in one army. It starts in the Army of the Potomac, uh, which we kind of see in popular culture as the uh, the main army of the North. It's the one that's always fighting with General Lee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's created by the medical director, Jonathan Letterman. Uh, he succeeded a, a previous medical director and there had been a lot of um, anger in the North, in the Northern public, uh, over the lack of treatment the wounded were receiving. Uh, it was clearly a system in need of overhaul. Again, this nation was completely unprepared for, for what they were facing. And they were starting to see sustained mass casualty events in a way that nobody predicted. Uh, and so it sort of necessitated a response, not only for humanitarian needs, but also because of public pressure. Uh, the Army of the Potomac was the most visible army of the war. It wasn't that far from telegraph stations, which were connected to newspapers across the nation. Uh, it was their medical failures were the most visible. Uh, so you had a mix of uh, both an actual humanitarian need, an actual failing, and public pressure. And that hit the Army of the Potomac uniquely strong uh, in a way that it never really hit the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, they didn't face quite the same public pressure that the Army of the Potomac did. Uh, so they started to create this in um, August of 1862. And it's a, it's a night and day switch. It's almost like somebody flipped a switch and, and things instantly started to get better. Mm -hmm. So the last major engagement before uh, the ambulance corps really instituted is the Battle of Second Bull Run, uh, Battle of Second Manassas. Mm -hmm. And there are still wounded left on the field for two weeks after the battle. 
they're just left behind. Uh, and the very next battle, uh, which is only a few weeks later, is the Battle of Antietam, the bloodiest day in American history. Uh, the Army of Northern Virginia uh, didn't expect another massive bloodletting like they saw at, at Second Bull Run. So they left behind their medical director. Uh, he wasn't present for the Battle of Antietam. Wow. Uh, and thankfully for the North, Dr. Letterman was present. He wasn't even able to bring up all of his ambulances, but all Union wounded were removed from the field within 24 hours. And we're talking tens of thousands of grievously wounded people. So it's a massive achievement with limited resources uh, that really proved the efficacy of his system. And by 1864, uh, there was an act, the Ambulance Corps Act, passed by Congress that dictated that system be adopted almost verbatim in every army of the United States, uh, in every theater. So uh, you, you do see that pressure that pushes it uh, and then the success that accelerates it until it's, it's widely adopted. And it's something we still benefit from today. The first two civilian ambulances uh, founded in Cincinnati and then New York uh, were founded by former officers of the Ambulance Corps. Uh, these were doctors who trained in medical evacuation. Uh, the one at Bellevue Hospital in New York still operates today as a FDNY EMS station number eight. Uh, so we see a very direct line between the innovations of the Civil War and uh, the emergency medical system that we have today. Now, what did these ambulances look like back then? Were they carts, you know, that people were pulling, or how did that? How did they work? There? They were all horse-drawn, uh, and there's an evolution through the conflict as well. Um, so, at the beginning of the war, as I said, they're they're mostly when the army is fighting, when the regular army is fighting, it's usually on the frontier. Uh, they're fighting Native American peoples. Uh, and out there, uh, there's not a lot of roads. Uh, there's not much of a support network in the way that you have here in the East. Uh, and the terrain is very difficult. So they relied on two-wheeled ambulances. It was the most maneuverable thing that they could get. It carried fewer people. Uh, it was not terribly comfortable, but it worked. Mm -hmm. Here in the East, a little bit different. Uh, these roads are widely available and they're making roads for the armies, not to mention train tracks. You can actually like roll the ambulances onto trains. Uh, as the war progresses, they even develop hospital cars for trains uh, with uh, beds that are suspended by rubber bands that allow them to uh, roll with the track so they don't uh, jostle the wounded too much. Uh, and so as the war progresses, pretty quickly they recognize that two-wheeled ambulances uh, are very uncomfortable. Uh, they don't carry as many people. They just don't work for this nature of warfare. And they're pretty quickly abandoned. Um, they're used until they're dead and then they're discarded uh, until the wagons fall apart. Four-wheeled ambulances really take off after that. And uh, there's a lot of different models of them. Uh, but the main one, the main successful one, the Rucker ambulance, remains in use almost till World War I for another like 50 years. Uh, so they did pretty quickly develop better systems and better equipment uh, as the war progressed. You don't really see that development in the South. A lot of soldiers, wounded soldiers, complained about being loaded into wagons that didn't have sufficient springs, uh, that were just flatbed, uh, that really uh, exacerbated wounds. Uh, it, it was not a good way to travel. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. This is kind of kind of a, a broad question might be might be difficult to answer but it, it's sounding like there were a ton of pretty significant medical developments and advancements made during the civil war was this one of the the quicker period or quicker rates of development and improvement of of this type of technology and care 
uh, in American, I don't know if we can say American wartime, Amy? Uh, yeah, I think, well, it, it's kind of a difficult metric to judge. I think this is a question that would be really good for a dissertation, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think that what we can say about Civil War medical care is there are advances that are made and we also see some backward steps. It's often a thing you hear in military history that uh, popular military history that warfare advances knowledge. Um, it's kind of a meme of military history uh, that war necessarily advances technology. That's a little bit too simplistic. Um, and you can see that in medical history as well. Uh, but just as broad examples, uh, the airplane, the light bulb, the locomotive, the steam engine, all of those are, in, are independently invented in peacetime. Uh, it wasn't warfare that created those inventions. You might see an acceleration, uh, the airplane being a big one, uh, an acceleration of, of innovation uh, that is spurred by warfare. But we also shouldn't ignore the ways in which warfare can set us back and does set us back. Um, the most obvious being, especially for a conflict like the Civil War, there's no way for us to know what mines we've lost. When you're looking at 720,000 dead, arguably over a million dead, if you're including the epidemics that continue after the war, um, that's a lot of lost lives. Those are a lot of lost mines, a lot of innovation that would have happened that we can never know. Uh, and we can't really judge that. There's no scale, there's no metric for knowing what didn't happen. Um, there are ways, again, in which we do see advancements. Uh, the, the ambulances, like I mentioned, undeniably a benefit that we gained from the innovations that were spurred by this conflict. Uh, but in other ways, uh, the medical community took some steps back. The big one being germ theory. Uh, germ theory was not really a thing by the Civil War. You have some proto-germ theory before the Civil War, uh, but it's, it's not well articulated. Uh, many of these doctors don't fully understand their own theories. Uh, and that's not a great way to sell uh, a complete reimagining of an entire medical system. Uh, you know, if you can't prove it, then we're probably not going to listen to you. And it's really not until 1869 uh, with the works of a Scottish physician, uh, Dr. Joseph Lister, uh, where you get Listerine from, the name Listerine. Uh, he comes up with the first real robust attempt at explaining a germ theory. Uh, and he faces a lot of pushback on this, uh, both in Europe and here. But America stands out in that period as being especially averse to germ theory. He comes to New York, he speaks at medical conferences. To his credit, he's really trying to get the Americans to, to buy into this. He recognizes how important it is to get this massive nation on board. Uh, but these surgeons are really averse to it. They're really not liking the idea that they may have been killing their patients by spreading infection mm -hmm. through their, their surgeries. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's easy to say we can forgive them for their ignorance. There's no way they could have known. But they'd have to forgive themselves. Uh, these guys were bathed in blood. One of these surgeons talks about how his hands were wrinkled like a washerwoman's with all the blood that he'd worked uh, through in a single day after combat. Right. And so they do become very averse to accepting this idea that they were actually killing their patients. Uh, they did see those patients they saved. And uh, certainly without medical intervention, a lot more people would have died regardless of infection. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not until after the death of President Garfield in I think 1887 uh, so decades later, that the American medical community starts to come around to it. The Civil War definitely set us back 
uh, and made us less willing to accept a clearly true and good thing that would have saved countless lives. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That kind of goes along also. Isn't isn't it true that once Lincoln was shot, he survived the wound, but then it's sometimes attributed to everybody tinkering around with the the hole in his head that that might have pushed him over? I've, I've heard that theory. Uh, <laughs> I think it's more true for other presidential assassinations, uh, Garfield and McKinley, especially. Um, Garfield's the one that really sticks out. Uh, there were people writing letters at the time saying, stop sticking your fingers into him. You're going to kill him. Uh, and he, they definitely did. Uh, Lincoln, though, if he had survived, he would have been brain dead. The, mm -hmm. the wound was so severe. Uh, it, it's really hard to see how he could have imagined without a modern breathing, uh, imagine how he could have survived without a modern breathing machine apparatus mm -hmm. uh, in a modern sterilized environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and even then he would have been brain dead. There, there was really nothing anybody could have done at that gotcha. point. Gotcha. Uh, infection is a major concern for um, the musicians as well. Uh, they are getting down there with their, their hands getting bloody. Uh, and when they go back to the hospitals, when they do that nursing work, um, sometimes they're sewing, sometimes they're sewing, um, uh, garments, uh, or there's a, sometimes they're handling bandages, uh, blood can be transferred by those needles, uh, and they can become infected as well. Infection is the number one killer of the war. Yeah. Well, nice, uh, nice cheery topic we've picked today, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, a, it's an important one and it's one that, um, like like we've been saying there's there's not much writing on and like kyle like you've been saying it usually gets a passing paragraph maybe at most in some of these books um you know but it it was a major part um you know of the war for these bandsmen i mean they're they're yes they're playing a lot of music but there's a lot of fighting that went on during the civil war obviously too <laughs> you know yeah they, yeah they and we and, shouldn't we shouldn't undermine too much the accomplishment of those musicians. They weren't trained uh, in this duty. They were heading into active battlefields. Uh, oftentimes, as, as Dr. Vickery said, they were physically incapable of such fatiguing duty. And still they went out there and did it. Uh, and it's, it's phenomenal the things that they did accomplish with all of those barriers in their way. Um, one of the George brothers, there was a series of four or five brothers who were all in the 10th Vermont band, mm -hmm. uh, said, I do not know what the wounded would do if it were not for the musicians. And he underlined musicians. Uh, they could see the benefits uh, of their work. They could see uh, how they were saving lives. Uh, and this, despite the fact that a lot of bands just didn't show up when they were ordered to, uh, those musicians who did were having to do extra work to, to really save lives. Uh, and it's, it's undeniable that they did. Mm -hmm, definitely. And we had mentioned that kind of the, the day of one of these bandsmen around the time of a battle is the night before they would report to a surgeon for duty and then throughout the battle function primarily as uh, a stretcher bearer is there any other component of either the bandsman's day or duties or maybe aftermath duties that that were involved with their their day-to-day -day operations that we maybe haven't talked about yet? Uh, I think we've, we've covered a lot of the actual day itself. Uh, right. As you said, oftentimes they reported to the surgeon uh, the night before if they knew there was going to be a battle. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to I don't have any good sources on um, when they were surprised by a battle. Hmm. Uh, like at the Battle of Shiloh, uh, where Grant's command was ambushed uh, early in the morning while making their breakfast. Hmm. Uh, it's, we don't really have a good source that I found yet of a musician saying, here's what I had to do. Um, 
But uh, usually they would see a very large battle coming. They would have had some preparation with the surgeon. Um, surgeons sometimes handed out um, some kind of insignia to designate them as non-combatants. Hmm. Uh, musicians did have specialized uniforms. Uh, they did wear uniforms that, that showed their rank with the piping across the chest. Uh, that was uh, blue or red or black or yellow, depending on what branch of the army they were in. Um, and musicians were generally seen as non-combatants, but there was no law that said they were non-combatants. There was no punishment if you deliberately shot a musician. It's just most people wouldn't have done that. Uh, so the surgeon would sometimes try to go a little further and give them some kind of insignia to say, this is a, a medical personnel, don't shoot at them. Uh, unfortunately, there was no agreed upon system for that. The Red Cross didn't exist in America yet. Uh, so everybody just kind of made it up as they went. Uh, there's one musician, a drummer from, uh, I think, Ohio, who writes about having a white rag tied around one arm. Uh, mm -hmm. And he thought that was going to be sufficient for people to notice. Um, others wore red or yellow or green. Um, there was no agreed upon thing. So I don't know how much good it actually did these poor musicians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there were some pretty high casualties uh, among the stretcher bearers. It was, I guess, the ones that tried something and it didn't work. We didn't really hear from them afterwards. So. <laughs> um, there's one badge that's in the collection of a historical artist, Don Troiani. Uh, and it's a red rectangle bordered in green. And it has a note accompanying it by the guy who wore it in the battle, the stretcher bearer. And mm -hmm. it says, uh, they did not seem to respect it much. Uh, and I mm -hmm. would imagine not because nobody knows what that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's all sorts of crazy uniforms in the war. So how are you supposed to know which ones are combatant and not? Yeah. So again, these musicians would sometimes get that uh, and then head to the front. Uh, and then it was just a back and forth, a constant back and forth to the front line, back to the field dressing station or the hospital. Uh, and that could go on well into the night. Many stretcher bearers write about working till midnight, two in the morning, three in the morning. Uh, just carrying people back and forth. Uh, then if they're lucky, they get some sleep. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the musicians do sometimes get left behind uh, as the army moves on. These battles were so huge and the, the mass casualties just so overwhelming that oftentimes medical personnel and bands would be left behind to continue treating the wounded and evacuating the wounded until the job was done. Uh, until you could evacuate them to what they called general hospitals, permanent hospitals behind the lines. Uh, and then they would have to rush and cap catch up with the army. Um, usually uh, there was enough time between the battles that the musicians could catch up, uh, but sometimes they would just arrive after another battle uh, in campaigns like the Seven Days, uh, and they would just have to continue doing that job, just continue evacuating the wounded and just try to leapfrog until they caught up to the army. Yeah. Some musicians were also sent back to those general hospitals. Um, there's some photographs of large brass bands uh, in hospitals in DC. I think Harewood Hospital uh, was one. Uh, and they would play music for the wounded. It was an attempt to, to try and keep their spirits up uh, after they'd undergone some, some pretty traumatic surgeries uh, and as they're in post-operative care. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, a quote that I pulled up that I was able to find that kind of supports what you were saying earlier about uh, ne needing to stay behind, I was able to find uh, a newspaper article that was written in Kentucky in 1896, kind of looking back, and it said, uh, at the Battle of Chancellorsville, the Stonewall Brigade suffered fearful loss, and the number of wounded was appalling. They were taken to a field hospital and attended by the band as surgeon corps, 
and for two weeks the musicians could not be spared from the wounded and so missed the sad opportunity of escorting the remains of General Stonewall Jackson back to Richmond. So yeah, so after the Battle of Chancellorsville, the Stonewall Brigade Band was was uh, for two weeks tending to the wounded there, which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, and uh, Stonewall uh, himself is actually a good example of um, the failures of medical evacuation in the Confederacy. Um, the first being that they didn't have enough people. Uh, as you said, the, the band was left behind. They weren't even present when, when he was wounded and eventually died. Uh, and the other side of that is those people who were present, those who did the evacuation, did it wrong. Um, when he was shot by his own soldiers, took a bullet to the arm, um, they carried him off the field uh, and they violated a lot of the training that the Union so, uh, stretcher bearers would have received. Uh, in the Union, you're supposed to have only two people to a stretcher and you're supposed to hold it down at your waist. It's easier to carry that way uh, if it's down that far. Mm-hmm. Um, but also if somebody, if one of those stretcher bearers is wounded or trips, uh, then your patient isn't gonna fall that far. Mm-hmm. Um, for the Confederacy and for Stonewall Jackson in particular, he was carried by four stretcher bearers and they held him at shoulder height. It was just more comfortable to carry him that way. Um, one of these stretcher bearers was killed by a shell uh, and another tripped later on. And both times the general fell five feet onto his wounded arm, uh, opening the artery at least once. Uh, And uh, subsequent medical historians have argued whether or not this uh, contributed to his eventual death. Uh, But that was a general, that was a general with a nickname. That's a general that people knew. And that's the treatment he received. Uh, This was, this just kind of goes to show how ill-prepared the Confederacy was for medical evacuation. Yeah. Is the the hypothetical there that if the band had been with them, he would have survived? <laughs> I mean, maybe, but then we have to ask the question of how much training did they actually receive? Were they one of those bands that uh, the uh, surgeon really took an interest in and made sure was really well trained? Um, and if not, then maybe he wouldn't have uh, done any better. Maybe they would have dropped him too. Well, it did come from the... Uh... Uh, it's the same band. It's it's a different source and a different uh, thing that they're mentioning. But of the Stonewall Brigade band was the quote that I mentioned that they said that they could take off an arm as well as a surgeon. Oh, <laughs> yeah, they were under um, Hunter Holmes McGuire, hmm. uh, who was a pretty well known surgeon of the war. He was he was pretty accomplished, knew what he was doing. So it wouldn't surprise me if he was involved uh, pretty directly in training those men. Uh, and just when Jackson was wounded and eventually died, they, they weren't present for him to call on. Mm-hmm. For sure. Were uh, bandsmen involved at all with uh, any uh, funeral detail aside from providing music? Is that something that that's uh, talked about or detailed by the museum at all? Oh, that's a good question. Um, not in my research, but I also uh, don't focus on um, death and funerals and, and such as a topic. My uh, specialty is, is ambulances. Thankfully, we have a lot of experts here uh, and we're all able to, to kind of cooperate on these things. We actually just had a great live stream about a week ago, uh, about three weeks ago by the time this uh, gets published, uh, where um, we talked about the body in the Civil War, uh, how death changed. Again, referencing that book I mentioned earlier, uh, This Republic of Suffering and a few others. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, as I said, we've got a whole team of researchers here. Uh, and I'll put this out for, for your audience too. If there's ever a question that you have uh, about Civil War medical history, something that you want to know more about, 
we have a uh, page on our website where you can make a free research request and our team will go through the library and dig through the archives and come up with a good answer for you. And, and there's no cost for that. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great resource. So it'll be good for everybody to know that. Great. Either Stephen or Kyle, is there anything that, that you guys can think of that we haven't talked about or gotten into yet that you'd like to either ask or, or bring to the attention of the audience? Yeah, I think we've uh, we've pretty well uh, rounded out the uh, the topic. Of course, there's always more to say, uh, but keep an eye on our website, on our social media. We're always publishing new stuff. <laughs> yeah, your your guys' social media presence and and contributions into you know research and and allowing easy access and good stories to be told to the public is astounding. You know, you guys are fantastic. Well, thank you. <laughs> And yeah, just yeah. to say it, where can people go uh, if they want to check out your social media pages or want to maybe become a member or uh, look into the maybe visiting the museum? Well, the best place to start is our website, uh, civilwarmed.org. Um, uh, obviously, right now with the coronavirus, um, we have some weird hours. Uh, so be sure to check our website. Uh, we are expanding, um, but, uh, but check there first. Uh, give us a call if you like. Uh, our, our phone number is on the webpage. Uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on YouTube. Uh, and uh, we most commonly update on Facebook. So that's a great place to, to keep up to date uh, with what's happening with us. Um, but really any of those channels will, will give you uh, information about us, how to get a hold of us and, and when and where to visit. Cool, yeah, that works. Well, great. Thank you so much, Kyle Dolan, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. It was great getting to pick your brain and uh, getting to talk about this, again, this side of the American bandsmen during the Civil War that, at least in the music books, isn't gone into as you know deeply as it definitely should. So thank you for this, uh, for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you for, uh, for hosting me. This was fun. <laughs> Thank you again to Kyle Dalton for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. As you mentioned earlier, it was great to finally have somebody come on to be able to shed some light on this area of the Civil War brass bandsman experience that, uh, you know, isn't always talked about. So thank you again so much for coming out. Yeah, definitely. It was great to get him on the show, like you said, to just kind of beef up maybe a little bit the information that's already out there on this topic. If you like what you're hearing on the show, feel free to support us on uh, social media, uh, our Patreon page, or our Teespring store if you want to buy some actual physical items. Uh, Christmas is coming up. Maybe if you have someone in your family who listens to the show, or if you want to get something for yourself, our Teespring store uh, is active. Uh, and a lot of Chris's arrangements are up there too. Uh, so there's some sheet music in addition to some physical items like sweatshirts and things like that. Um, so you can find all those links and show notes for every episode on our website. That's eabbpodcast.com. So we do hope that you'll check that stuff out. So now, as this episode's featured album, we are going to feature a recording. This is Our Lady of the Hospital, sung by Kaylee Harmon, accompanied by Matt Warfield May. Enjoy. Sentinel's head 
Thank you again to Kaylee and Matt for performing what we think is the only recording of this song, Our Lady of the Hospital. Information about that song will be available on our show notes, and the song by itself will be available as a YouTube video, so go ahead and check that out. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Early American Brass Band Podcast. Tune in next episode where we'll be talking with Sabina Klaus, curator of the Utley Collection with the National Music Museum in South Dakota. We'll see you then. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.